So while we're kind of on the topic of, of missions, um, I do have something that I'm, I don't know if it's exciting news to share, but uh, I just want to say that I don't, I don't know if anyone, a lot of people, you, a lot of people here know this, but for the last seven months, I've kind of been holding the helm uh, on our on our global missions uh, ministry. And if you didn't know this, we support 60 plus missionaries all over the globe who have been called in some way to reveal Jesus um, in context outside of, well, the West, outside of the United States. And I've just been, as I've had a chance to meet with about three quarters of that 60 plus, I am just incredibly blown away by the work that God is doing through this church overseas. Now, it's also really exciting to me to kind of hear the stories of, of what God is doing. Because I think historically, not just this church, but most churches, they tend to divide global and local missions. That even like sometimes you'll have a staff person that just focuses on global and another staff person that just focuses on local. But I think we're coming to a place where those two ministries need to, to kind of be led and seen as one. And I share this for a few reasons. One, most of our missionaries go out to countries where uh, Christianity is the minority religion, where they are working at a place of disadvantage from day one. And we are becoming, in the United States, a place where Christianity is becoming a minority religion. Now, I don't say that to bum you out, but that's just the reality of where we find ourselves. Um, there's, some, there's a lot of data that supports that. Um, Let's see, I'm trying to think, where do I start? Uh, biblical literacy is at an all-time low. I think you can kind of see that in conversations that you might have with people or in other teachings that you might see uh, throughout social media or podcasts that you follow. Uh, it's very clear that, that we are no longer the moral majority as culture shifts away from the, moral, um, the morality and the beliefs that, that we were once built on. Um, and the first time in census history, more people than ever have selected none as their spirituality. You partner that with simple things like pre-COVID-19, people, uh, Americans specifically, attended church twice a month. Now, not, we're not really post-COVID, but like in a post-lockdown world, people attend church now once a month. And so I share all that, not to discourage you or to bum you out, but I say that to be like, the, to, to kind of bring to light that the environment in which we're sending our global partners to looks a lot like the environment that we are doing ministry in today. And as we talk about initiatives like circles and living incarnationally and building relationships and partnering with the city and partnering with other churches, these are all things that our global partners have been doing for years. And so as I hear stories and I see the world that we're navigating today. I don't think we're at a place where we're holding local and global apart from each other. But we're at a place now where we can actually learn a lot for, on how we engage our neighbor here in Fullerton, how we engage our neighbors here in North Orange County by learning from our partners and what they've experienced and what they've seen and how they've navigated post-church environments as we're becoming one. So I say all that because I think the conversations that we've been in throughout 1 Corinthians are incredibly relevant to continue doing that type of work. See, the 1 Corinthian church, they were a church mostly of Gentile believers. And so Gentiles were people that did not have a Jewish background. They were assumed to have a, a, a pagan background. And so they, they chose, Jesus revealed himself to them, and they began a life of following him. And so you have a people who are coming to know Jesus for the very first time, navigating 
what does that look like to exist in a world that I was once a part of, that my family, my community, my friendships, my work, my worship was all intertwined in this one world that now Jesus is calling me to live outside of. And so just as Paul is writing throughout 1 Corinthians to this young church about things that he's hearing about them, they also were corresponding with him, asking questions. Well, what does it look like for us to even live this life that we're talking about? And I think those same questions, that, that same confusion might resonate with a lot of us. I know that because one of the, 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 the primary questions or one of the questions I'm asked the most in my role here at this church, kind of living in this world of outreach, both locally and globally, um, people often ask, and I'm, I'm kind of summarizing into one question, but how do we as Christ followers, how do we as Christians conduct ourselves in a world that is far from Jesus? How do we participate? How do we be a light in a world that, that is far from Jesus without compromising our own righteousness, without compromising my own walk with him. And so in chapter 8, we see Paul kind of addressing a question along these lines. You see, throughout this last few weeks, I think um, Jeff started it uh, the week of New Year's, Darren taught a little bit last week, and then I'm kind of finishing up this one question. But there was this question asked to Paul, which is essentially... Can we keep eating the meat that is being offered to idols? Now that that question, although it may seem very basic, is a multi-layered question. Because, like I said, um, these people were coming out of one world. And the world that they are a part of um, in in Corinth was that, well, this was a, a trade hub, a coastal city. So you have multiple cultures, multiple occupations, all converging in one place. So when you have multiple people with multiple backgrounds, all coming in one place, spending lots of time together, you have multiple idols and multiple ways of worship and multiple values um, and multiple just ways of living all being thrown together. And so for the new believer coming out of this life of paganism or coming out of this life of not knowing Jesus, being invited into this new one means that all of their relationships, like I shared earlier, their community, their worship, their fellowship, how they ate, where they ate, where they shopped, all of that was tied deeply, ingrained into this community that they're navigating how to live outside of. And so that first week, it was, I, think, I believe it was January 1st, Jeff addressed um, in his response, um, Paul's response to the question being asked. But the way Paul first addresses it in chapter 8, he doesn't dig right in and just simply answer the question about meat, but rather he answers the question of the thing behind the thing. See, the question isn't so much can I eat this meat or can I eat at these places? The question is really in Christ with the liberties and grace he offers, how much of the old life is still lawful? In Christ with the liberties he offers, how much of the old life is still lawful? And so if you haven't listened to that sermon, I encourage you to go back and listen to it um, because it kind of paints the picture of where we're landing today. And so Jeff 
addresses it beautifully, and I, I think you'd be pleased to listen to that, but we don't have a lot of time, and so we're not going to spend time there. Go listen to that to hear the answer to that question. And then two, last week, Darren kind of addressed Paul's continuing answer to the response, where again, Paul doesn't jump right into answering the question about me, but rather Paul kind of continues this idea that is teased out in, cha- in excuse me, chapter 8, which is that the very life that we live, the decisions that we make are not based on our own liberties or their own freedom or the privileges that we assume as followers of Jesus, but rather the decisions that we make, the way we align ourselves, the way we live has everything to do with the people in which we are serving and how we are living sacrificially among them. And Paul beautifully uses his own life as an example. He says, as a, as, as a Jew, as a Pharisee, I, I, as a preacher... I have all of these privileges afforded to me, but yet I die to those things. I lay those things aside. I train myself. I condition myself to live a life of sacrifice so that I might win some. And Paul uses these beautiful kind of athletic uh, pictures of someone who who runs a race or beats the air. And when I heard that, uh, it reminded me of of my my own very life. A few years ago, I, I picked up running and I've learned to, to run endurance races and I've run a few marathons. I've run two halves and a full marathon. I don't know why I do it. They're completely painful and they hurt. But I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about conditioning and I learned a lot about sacrifice in my attempt to do so. See, I learned that the way I lived before, the flippancy in which I woke up, the flippancy in which I ate, the flippancy in which I, I saw the world around me needed to change. I had to be incredibly more intentional about, one, how I was spending time with my family, how I was spending time with God, and how I was spending time caring for myself. I had to change the way I ate. I had to, in, had to introduce some new people to my life, people that were better at running than me so I can learn from them, but also people that were at my place so we can encourage one another. Shout out Foolish and Run Club if you're in the room. Uh, and then also people that just got into running, so that way I might encourage them as well. And so when Paul talks about this life of submitting yourself for a goal, punishing your body so that you might obtain the prize, that resonates incredibly well with me. And I wonder if there are areas in your own life, if not just that of following Jesus, where you can resonate of what it looks like to put your body into submission, to live in a way, to act in a way, to carry yourself in a way that may be foreign to you. And so now in chapter 10, we find ourselves with Paul wrapping up his response about the meat. So let's go ahead and take a few minutes and read verses 1 through 6. If you have your your journal, you can turn there. If not, you can just listen. But in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, Paul's very use of this Exodus kind of overarching redemption story, really the beginning of God's redemption for the nation of Israel, is important for a few reasons. One... He's speaking and writing to, like I said, a first-generation church where most of them are Gentiles, 
where if you were a Jew or you had some type of Jewish background or you were a convert, you'd be very familiar with this story. You've heard this story from birth. You knew that you were a part of something bigger. You knew God had been in process of redeeming all of humanity since the end of the beginning. But he's saying this to remind this young church that, yes, you were once part of an old community. You were once part of an old family. But now, as a follower of Jesus, you were invited into something so much bigger than the life that you once lived. It's also important to know that Paul addresses this text in a way where you could assume that they've heard this before. So it's not only a reminder, but it's also an affirmation to this young church that they were actually teaching the Bible. They were teaching scripture. They were spending time in the stories of the Old Testament, knowing where they came from. And so Paul uses this, this story in the Exodus to remind them that they were part of a a redemption story that was in the works long before them and that they this church in Corinth, can learn from the mistakes of their fathers. Now, my, my, I have four kids, uh, 10, 9, 4, and 2. My, my two older are kind of getting to the age where they're becoming more aware of the world around them. Um, they're becoming a little bit more aware of how people live their lives and the things that people do, which means they're asking uh, better questions. And so uh, a few months ago, my son asked me the question, Dad, were you a drugger? I, maybe that's just the way kids talk these days, but essentially he was asking the question like, dad, did you do drugs uh, before you knew Jesus? Because my kids know that I had a life outside of Jesus at one point. And I think as they're starting to think about their own lives, uh, I think they're asking questions and they want to know, what is this life outside of this? This is all my kids know, which is weird to me. Like this, this weird megachurch environment that we raise our kids in, like that's the only world that my kids know and it's completely normal to them, which means they have questions about the way that I used to live. So they'll ask things like, dad, were you a drugger? Or dad, were you a vandal? And in that question, he wants to know, did I do graffiti? Uh, and then what else did he say? Dad, did you, did you steal? Did you ever yell at your parents? And they're asking all of these questions. And I think my first response is like, I don't want my kids to know about who I was and what I did. But at the same time, I was their age when I started doing the things that I did prior to knowing Jesus, which means that very same nature that was in me at 11 is in them. And what I do want to be able to do is to tell them that at that age of 11, that God is so much more capable of fulfilling all of those desires, wants, and needs that are attached to those feelings that lead us to that brokenness. I didn't wake up one morning as, as, a, as a young man thinking like, I'm going to do drugs today. No, I was searching for approval. I was searching for community. I wanted belonging. I wanted people to like me. I wanted to think I was cool. I wanted to show I was like everyone else. And so in my own brokenness, I did dumb things. But I want my kids to know that I did those dumb things to tell them that those dumb things lead to nowhere. That the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the belonging and the sense of family and community that I feel as a follower of Jesus pales into comparison. I'm sorry, all of those feelings pale into comparison to what I feel, what I experience as a son of God. And so Paul is doing the exact same thing with this young church in Corinth. He's telling them there were people before you that had very similar questions, very similar desires to the ones that you're experiencing now. And well, let me tell you how that went for them. And in verse six, it says, 
that they still desired evil. Paul reminds them, don't be idolaters as some of them were. You see, I skipped this little portion where this, this Exodus story that, that Paul uses as this illustration like paints this beautiful picture of the proximity, not just the salvation, not just the closeness to God that the, that the Israelites had, but rather like God appeared to them in a cloud. Like God's actual presence was visibly seen to them. They knew God was near because they saw the cloud and knew God was with them. In their own salvation, God parted the seas in a way that, that they were able to walk across dry land to their very salvation. God provided for their sustenance, their meals, their thirst in miraculous ways. Their very leader, the very man that God chose to lead them, was, had a heart so after God's own that he literally stood toe to toe with the creator of the universe. And still, and still it says that some of them fell. Now, I don't believe that the Israelites' displeasure to God wasn't the fact that they were just drawn to idols, right? Because that, that doesn't align with the grace and the mercy and the long-suffering that we know about God. That God desires to draw all people to himself even in the, in the early days of the Israelites, it was still God's desire that the Israelites would be a light on the hill so that other people would know that the, he is their God. And that through, the, through their worship to him, through their sacrifice to him, they would, they would be able to see and know the God that they worshiped. See, I think God's displeasure with the nation of Israel or the Israelites was that it wasn't that they were just drawn to idols, but it was the fact that they attempted to worship God while at the same time practicing the practice of idolatry. You see, Jesus says in Matthew that no one can serve two masters for he will either hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Verse 7 back in chapter 10 continues that do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the tests as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our own instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Now, I wonder for some of us, and I know this to be true because I've done this in my own life, that you kind of get accustomed to living in this world. Not like this world, but like this world, like this world of church and Christianity, right? We become accustomed to, to the rhythms and the habits. We know when to show up. We know the words to use. We know the books to read, the pods to listen to. Uh, we we kind of, we get it. We know the plan, and it's very easy when you get the plan, when you get how things work, it becomes very easy to kind of know like, oh, I'm good. Like, I get this. Like, I do the things. I, ch I have the list. I check the boxes. Like, I'm good, God. But what God's saying here is that 
That's, that's the very posture of the nation of Israel, that they had prox- such proximity to God, such supernatural connection to him that, well, they thought, yeah, we're good. But there's also this other stuff happening around us that we want to begin to bring into our lives, that we want to begin to dabble in and eventually make part of our worship. You see, the nation of Israel, they, they experience the salvific miracle, the parting of the Red Sea. Like I said, they were, spare, they were led by a leader who stood toe-to-toe with God. They experienced God in his supernatural presence in the cloud. And Paul reminds us that they fell. And it's a reminder to this church in Corinth, and it's a reminder to us today, that we will fall. When we think we've got it figured out, when we think we, we figured out the game, that we get the system, and we think we're good, and we begin to entertain and dabble with the world of worship around us, probably bringing them both together, in which I've done. There are, that's, that's the danger even in my own life, of having experienced so much outside being a follower of Jesus. I, I, I miss certain things. I miss certain relationships. I miss certain habits, freedoms that I had before. And I've attempted to before, like, oh, how, what, I, I can still do this. I can still know this person. I can still communicate with this person. I can still go on this blog. But the moment I think I got it, I will fall just as the nation of Israel fall, fell. And church, we will fall once we think we've had it figured out. Verse 13, Paul goes on, says, No temptation has ever overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is probably one of those like greeting card verses. I don't mean it in the sense like, I don't, I don't want a greeting card with this verse on it. But like, this is one of those verses that like when we have a friend in our life uh, who's experiencing maybe a difficult season, they're going through a, tri- a trial. And this is one of those Christian verses that we tend to throw around, that we tend to give people. Oh, you're, you're, you're suffering? Oh, you're, you're, you feel like you're being tempted? Well, brother, let me tell you that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability. And we kind of say that as a, as a way to encourage one another. But I think at the same time, when we say that, we also say like, hey, God's not going to tempt you beyond your ability. So you're good. You got it. When in reality that this verse, when Paul says that we will not be tempted beyond our own ability, that means there is nothing that we can bring to any situation that will be able to rescue us from it. Now, I think this, this verse says two things. One is that Paul's been talking about the supernatural a lot here in this chapter. He talks about it a lot with the nation of Israel. He's going to talk about it in communion. He talks about demons a little bit. So there's a lot of supernatural conversation here. And so I think in the tone of this, of this part of the letter, that there, there certainly could be a supernatural rope being thrown to you in your time of temptation. I bet you I even asked for a show of hands. How many people have you feel like God has rescued you from an incredibly difficult situation? I think there would be a lot of hands raised in this room. As I talk to partners all over the globe, I hear story after story of the way that God has rescued them from difficult situations, from deportation, from death. But I wonder, does it always have to be this this spiritual life rope, the spiritual ladder that God is giving to us when we find ourselves in the pit of temptation. I wonder if when Paul says that, that he's not so much asking us to, for God to deliver us, but really to reflect on all the ways that God has already 
delivered us. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life and died a death that only you and I, with the sin nature, were worthy of dying. And it was through Jesus' death, he was the scapegoat for us that we might have relationship and spend all eternity with the true and living God. There was nothing that you and I could do. There was nothing that the nation of Israel could have done to restore that relationship, to bring us back into good standing with God, but through Jesus. And so I wonder that when we find ourselves in this season of distress, we find ourselves under temptation. If it's not so much a call for God to save us in this miraculous way, but a call for us to reposition our eyes and reposition our lives to what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus. And what this life of sacrifice affords not us, but him. So my question to you is, if you find yourself in a place like that this morning, yes, God can and could send you some type of supernatural rope to get you out of your season. But I wonder before you wait for that, or as you're waiting for that, maybe you ask God or you cry out to Jesus to be with you as you are in this season of temptation. Because he's not foreign to our own temptation, right? He spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the same enemy that Paul's going to talk about here. And Paul and Jesus himself was able to endure the temptation. So I wonder if, if Jesus alone could be enough. His presence with you to get you through that season of temptation. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, free from idolatry, I speak to, excuse me, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. Uh, I read that wrong, sorry. Is not the, <laughs> the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not the partic- participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is only one bread, we who are many are only our one body. For we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that, any, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, this is where Paul begins to answer the original question that was asked back in chapter 8. Can we partake of the table of the altar? Can we, can we eat the meat that is offered at these tables in the temple. I think it's, it's also worth noting here that Paul kind of addressed something. He doesn't really contradict himself, but in, in chapter 8, Paul says that there are no idols. Like, idols cannot exist because there's only one God. And so if God is the only God, then none of these idols are real. But well, Paul kind of circles back and says, well, if these idols aren't real, what's happening is that there are demons behind these idols— attempting to draw you away from God, attempting to lure you away from proximity and relationship to Jesus. And that when you sit at this table, whether it be the altar to the pagan idols and gods, 
or to the table of communion with your brothers and sisters, there is something incredibly supernatural happening here. That when we as brothers and sisters, that when we partake of communion, that in some way it it unifies us to Jesus. It connects us to him in a way that it reminds us of who he is. It invites us into his own sacrifice and his own way of living. But also it reminds us and it connects us to one another. See, the way we take communion here once a month where we kind of contemplate and reflect on our own relationship to Jesus is not the way the early church took communion. They they took it through a table meal. And so when when they sat at the table and they literally broke the bread and passed it to their brother and they looked in the eye of them, something supernatural was happening there. They were being connected to a brother or sister that they had no biological way of being connected to. For some of them, no relational way of knowing one another. But when we sit at the table... And we remember Jesus and we partake in his offering, it connects us. But on the other side of that coin, when we sit at the table of the altars, of these idols, we eat the food that's being offered at the altar table of the idol, the same way we would have communion with one another, we are partaking in communion with demons. Again, the supernatural world, Paul is kind of really leaning into this in this chapter, and there's so much to dig into. Uh, there's so much theology here uh, that we, this chapter could easily be taught over weeks. But, but, but to just kind of sum it up, that when we sit at the table, specifically in the table of worship, whether it be to Jesus or to any, any other idol of the world, when we sit at that table, we are being connected to one of those lords, either the Lord Jesus who connects us to heaven, connects us to all the creation, restores us to God, or it connects us to demons who serve the enemy and want nothing more but to pull us away from proximity and relationship to Jesus. And so Paul is saying that when you're at this table, so if your question to me, uh, young Corinthian believer, is that can you, can you continue to attend the temple parties that you were once a part of? Paul's answer is, No, I mean, he simply says it there that you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Now, he's not saying that, like, it's not like a rule. He's not giving them a check mark, but he's saying, if you desire me, if what you said about me is true, this life that you've given to me, the the way you declare me as Lord, if all this is true, I cannot be the Lord of your life if you're sitting at the table of idols and demons. And so, no. Paul says you cannot follow Jesus. You cannot be in proximity. You cannot be in relationship with him while at the same time being in relationship with the forces and the enemies of this world. Verses 23 through 30 says that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold to the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience for his, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? 
So Paul now answers the second kind of literal part of their question. Uh, can I eat the meat in the market? Which was really unique to this, this, this city and this demographic of people because most people didn't have meat as a regular part of their diet, but because there were so many temples in this city, there were so many sacrifices being made, meat had become common to their, to their, to their diet and what they would eat regularly. And so part of what the questions are asking is, well, can we keep buying the meat? And Paul, Paul kind of says, well, yeah. I mean, if you want some steak and your, your conscience is good with it, you want some carne asada, like go for it. Enjoy it because God's created it. He's redeemed it for you. But, but if you know that this meat has been offered in the temple. So if you go to sit at someone's home, they've invited you over for dinner. They've prepared you a meal. And as they're serving you the tacos that they've made for you, they say, oh, by the way, this, 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 this meat is straight off the altar from the temple down the street. In that situation, Paul is saying, practice sacrifice, practice self-control, and decline. It has nothing to do with the meat, but has everything to do with the conscience of the person that's serving you the meat. In a way that when they see you partaking of something that they've offered to demons— their interpretation of you is, well, how is this person any different than me? But rather, in our own sacrifice, in our own self-control, we are able to put on display the very life that Jesus, that Paul, has modeled for us. You see, that's why this is so important, right? I think this is kind of confusing, even if you kind of, if you were to think about these things very quickly, it's like, okay, I can eat meat here, but I can't eat meat there, and this means clean, and this means ungodly, and it's all from the same cow, isn't it? But I think Paul's talking about so much more than me in this conversation. Right? I, I think he said it um, in, in verse, in chapter 9, but he'll say it again here, verse 32. Give no, offense, give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but for that of many that they may be saved. See, everything that Paul did Everything, the way he lived his life, the liberties that he took advantage of in some circumstances, the liberties that he would lay down, the ways that he would punish his body, the way he would willingly allow himself to be beat, the way he would run when it was the right time to run, the right cities that he would go to. Everything that Paul did was so that he might reveal Jesus to some and that they would be saved. Now, it's also key to know that in that verse that when he says, when he's talking about not being an offense to the people that God's called you to live alongside or to minister to, he's not talking about hurting their feelings. I think oftentimes that we, we, we kind of do that. We, kinda, we live in a life where we, we're trying so hard to not offend anyone. We don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Or we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And I'm not saying be a jerk. That it's not a liberty for anyone to be a jerk and to not take people's feelings in, into consideration. But what I am saying is that when Paul says not to be offensive, what he's talking about is don't lose the favor that you might have with that person that God's given you proximity to. I mean, that's the crux of all of this circles conversation that we have at this church, right? That we recognize that God has uniquely placed you somewhere in your, in your sphere, in your city, in whatever your, your life overlaps with people, whether that be your job, your kid's school, uh, the type of hobbies you partake in. But there are people within your circle that God has given you unique favor with. 
And what Paul is saying here is that I don't ever want to do something that causes me to lose that favor. Because it's through favor that we earn trust, right? It's through favor that we earn privilege. It's through favor that we earn maybe street cred with people around our circle. It's with favor that we earn the ability to speak into and be a part of people's lives that walking up to someone blindly on a corner doesn't give us. Now, I don't want to bash street witnessing because I think there are probably people in this room who are a product of that. But, but to say, honestly, when you ask people, if we were to survey the people in this room, how did you come to know Jesus? Uh, the, the actual number of people that were saved through street witnessing is so much smaller than the people that say, no, it was someone in my sphere of influence. It was someone in my circle that told me about Jesus. It was someone in my circle that modeled Jesus in a way that I've never experienced before. It was someone in my circle that talked about the promises and the hope of God in a way that I've never experienced. And for some reason, I just wanted to be a part of that. So when Paul says to not offend them, he's saying, friends, the way you orchestrate your relationships, the way you live your life, the way you navigate conversations with people, do that in a way that you never lose the favor that you have with them. And that's why Paul talks about this work of submitting his body, right? Of punishing his body for the race, as, as, as a boxer would or as a runner would, learning a new way of living because we are selfish, sinful beings and it is not easy for us to think about anybody else other than ourselves. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus, that is all of our sin nature. And as Paul says, he dies daily, we die daily to ourselves, remembering that God has called us to people around him. But it takes work, it takes practice, it takes training, it takes submission, it takes sacrifice. And just as I have learned in my own running life that when I need to wake up and how I actually enjoy running now, I, I can manage that. I don't always enjoy it, but I can manage it. And I know it's helpful for me that I, I put my body through these things. And so my call to you is that how do we do that to better be, to be better neighbors, to be better friends to the people that God has called us and allowed into our circle. And then I, I land on this one last thing. Paul ends with this verse, be imitators of me and I as I am imitators of Christ. And I don't want to spend a lot of time there, uh, but I just want to acknowledge it because I think it's a verse that can be triggering for a lot of people. I bet you there are a lot of people in this room who have in some way been given that verse by someone who did not model what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, Paul did not have the text that we have, have we had, that we have. Paul had relationship with the twelve. Or the 11, excuse me. Paul had relationship with other people that experienced Jesus. Paul had divine uh, appearances by the Lord Jesus himself. Paul understood, Paul knew, whether that be through relationship or through rev divine revelation, Paul knew what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And there isn't a thing that Paul does, not only in the book of 1 Corinthians, the 2 Corinthians, any of the pastor, any of the epistles, excuse me, any of the epistles, there isn't anything that Paul does in his own life that Jesus didn't model first. And so when Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, he's not saying follow me because I, Paul, got all the answers. But no, he's saying follow me because I've seen, I've seen how Jesus has lived. I've experienced how Jesus lives. And I'm not asking you to follow Paul. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. And friends, you and I, we have the ability to look at Jesus's life. We have the, the ability to examine it, to spend time with him, to look at the way that he engaged with his neighbors, look at the way he engaged with the broken, the sinner, the way he engaged with the, the religious leaders of his time. 
And you and I have a very clear picture of what Jesus' life was like because we get to see Jesus' life throughout the four gospel letters. And so, friends, I invite you that when somebody says, be a follower of me as I follow Christ, the lens that you need to hold them up to is not how many people there are following them on social media or how many people attend their church or how many great songs they've written or whatever it is that it might be. But rather, does the life that they're living, the way that they talk, the way that they treat their friends, the way that they lead their family, is it in line with the Jesus that we see in Scripture? Because if it's not, do not follow that person. And my hope for us as a church that we become people that are so enamored by our Lord Jesus that all we want to do is spend all of our waking moments with him, studying him through the text, seeing him in our relationships with one another, that we become a people that can truly say, follow us as we follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you get it, that you've experienced life this side of heaven, that you know all the things that we experience and struggle with. You know the things that are hard for us because you experience them first. So we are grateful that you provide a way out for us. But also, Lord, that you provide, a, you provide an opportunity for us to continue the work that you began here on earth, Lord. So God, give us wisdom. Lord, give us discernment. Give us a supernatural ability to be able to navigate the world that we find ourselves in. Lord, would you help us, give us the power through your spirit, Lord, to be able to submit our bodies, to submit our lives, to submit our preferences and freedoms to you, Lord, on behalf of others. Lord, by your working through us, God, that some might be saved. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.